0: Uh, This is the first in a series of uh, public discussion events and workshops that we're running under the banner of of the the Mental Health Arts Network, which is a new project, um, which is being funded by the Bering Foundation. Um, And the idea um, generally is to bring together people with an interest in the arts and mental health and to share knowledge, to share experiences, to share resources, uh, of mutual learning and and to meet new people as well in in the process. Um, We have four guests today, um, who I'm going to be asking to share uh, their experiences on the subject of telling stories about suicide. Um, uh, And I'll just introduce them briefly before I go to each one. Uh, Mariam Omari, um, good good afternoon, Mariam, is Artistic Director of Beechley Productions, um, who are an arts production company who have worked with us um, several times before. um, their show, um, a theatre show, One Mississippi, Um, which is touring Scotland in May is is based on interviews uh, with with, uh, numerous men who have have attempted suicide. Um, uh, Beck Singleton is a filmmaker um, whose uh, documentary um, I'll Love You Till the End is a sensitive examination of the experience of people who have been bereaved when someone they loved died by suicide and uh, it previously screened at um, the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival in in, in 2020, and it's a very, very beautiful film, I recommend it. Um, uh, Rory O'Connor, our third guest, is Professor of Health Psychology at the University of Glasgow, um, and has been researching suicide for about uh, 25 years now, I believe. Um, Rory recently published a book uh, called When It Is Darkest, Uh, which combines um, a lot of the things that he's found uh, through his research with also his his own personal experiences of of, uh, bereavement. And finally, uh, Mick Duke is a playwright and a theatre director um, who I was keen to bring into this discussion because he's kind of at the start of a journey uh, similar to the one that Bex and Mariam have kind of completed. Um, Mick is is currently um, developing a new theatre project about um, the difficulty of understanding uh, suicide notes and uh, what suicide notes may, may mean uh, and what they tell you about the, uh, people who have died by suicide. So, I'm going to start with Mariam. Um, Mariam, let's talk a bit about One Mississippi, really, really powerful play about uh, men's childhood trauma and, and the things that lead um, uh, them to, to attempt suicide. I and mean, this, this was based on interviews uh, with with people who had gone through that experience for real. Can you tell us a bit about that process, about what the kind of sensitivities and considerations were involved in doing that?
1: Thanks, Andrew. And just a quick thank you to SMAF and for creating this platform. And thank you everyone for joining us today. Uh, One Mississippi um, was a challenging piece to write uh, for various reasons. Um, I think it came off the back of the previous verbatim play I had written called, If I Had a Girl. And I had interviewed um, some men uh, as part of that process and started to realize um, how much childhood trauma influenced um, their later mental health challenges and their uh, the shame surrounding um, the fact they were incarcerated for domestic abuse and um, and the discussion that we had around uh, them contemplating uh, suicide as a result of their actions. And as a as soon it soon sort of occurred to me, that there was a much bigger story that I wanted to explore in one Mississippi. And so of course, working with verbatim and real story, I embarked on uh, a series of interviews with a diverse group of men across Scotland. And coming from my own sort of diverse background, I was interested in how things like tradition and culture and religion also influence um, beliefs and um, the way that people kind of both deal with their mental health challenges, but also then um, experience um, the the sort of challenges of tradition and culture that are all these push-pull factors in what takes them to breaking point, which is what the play is about. So, as I um, as I started out, I, I started with people I knew, with men that I knew, and another uh, one of the other factors in the reason why I had chosen men was well, firstly, it was personal. Uh, I, significant men in my life had um, mental health challenges and and attempted suicide, but also um, I was. I was astounded at the statistics and I was looking at the statistics around um, men and suicide and just kept questioning why, why, which is what sort of led me down this road of childhood trauma and um, looking at that in the interviews that I did. So, as I said, I started with men who I knew quite well, who had um, all I knew had struggled with Um, mental health challenges I didn't know much more than that but during the course of the interviews with them had then found out that they had attempted suicide Um, as a result of having those conversations with them I wanted to broaden out and they um, they were really keen for me to speak to friends or friends of friends who they knew had also Attempted suicide, and and the work grew from there, and of course because of the communities I was I was really interested in, I was very fortunate to start to be able to speak to men from Sikh community, um, from Muslim communities, um, from um, communities that came that were that were uh, from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So it was it was uh, really um, quite extraordinary that there was kind of this intersectional um, universal issues that kept coming up over and over again. And, um, and some of you may be aware of the big adverse childhood experiences study um, that was done by cdc Kaiser, And I actually looked into that and, and with my mentor, John McCormack, who was at the time with the Scottish Recovery Network, um, I started to really dig deep into you know, what are some of the factors that are really influencing these men going to this breaking point?
0: And what was the experience like of doing those interviews for you and, and for them? How would you describe that?
1: Um, I think that it was, uh, for me, um, curious in one way in that some of the men I spoke to had never spoken about their suicide attempt to anyone than perhaps one, one friend or one family member or oh. possibly no one. And um, that came through as uh, part of the interview and the way in which, um, I guess, for me, I wanted to explore it as sensitively as possible while also hoping that through that, those conversations there was um, there was a collective desire to put on stage um, diverse stories about this experience that were authentic and powerful while also revealing the humor at moments that are so harrowing um that that there's shades of light and dark and that came out in the interviews so strongly and every time we went through sort of some really difficult subject matter i i I, nine times out of ten the man i was speaking to would say i hope by telling you this this is gonna this is gonna help somebody
0: And it was quite, I mean, I I was at the premiere of of the show a a few years ago, and I remember there being a few people who you'd interviewed in the audience for it. And and it seemed to be quite a powerful experience for them.
1: I think because these issues around um, being seen and being heard and our culture in relation to male vulnerability, um, all of that... Um, were factors in how these men then felt once they were watching their stories portray on stage through the voices and bodies of the actors. And um, some of whom, one in particular, um, Tony, I can use his name because he's very vocal now. He has his own platform. Uh, He had never been to the theatre nor had his family. And his family had also never truly understood the journey he'd been through and he, his words, his family's words, it was life-changing, having that story, having, seeing his story, but also seeing his story with his mother and his brother, and having that understanding of where he went to, the place he went to, the dark place he went to, and then the place that he has now ended up in.
0: Mm, so he felt understood, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yes, definitely.
1: Um,
0: I, I, I want to move on to Bex in, in just a moment. But actually, there's, there's a question that's just come up in the chat from from Tony, which I think I'd like to put to Mariam just quickly, um, which is what is the protocol with regard to giving advanced information to the audience that a play contains references to suicide? I mean, this is something, Marian that we discussed nowhere in the marketing copy for One Mississippi does it say explicitly that it's about suicide. I mean, can you just quickly talk about that decision?
1: Certainly, when we showcased in twenty seventeen, um, I think because we started out, this, the the idea in my mind was I was going to make this piece of work about men and suicide. But then, as the interviews progressed, it became about something more than that. Oh. That we we said that it was about what draw what drives men to breaking point, and we focused more on that mental health aspect, um, and. When we showcased, we did say there were strong themes, uh, strong strong uh, themes of violence, um, strong language, and, and, and things like that, and gave an age recommendation. Um, but I think for us, we wanted, uh, we were very much because we were part of SMAF and we were foking, very, focusing very much on the childhood trauma, and the breaking point, and the themes of suicide came towards the end. We felt that we didn't want to create a sort of focus in on that that may take away from everything else that were that was in these stories. Now, at the time, that was fine and it never came back to be an issue, but what we have done now with the tour is we have said themes of suicide in the warning. So we just felt that, yeah, no, maybe we got away with no one being, you know, um, triggered or concerned about the fact that it appeared in the play because of the other warnings but now we just we we've definitely changed that warning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's 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 a good question and, and something I think we might come back to a, a bit later. Um Bex um your beautiful film I love you till the end um also based on interviews um with um uh, people um uh, one of whom was was you and, 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 and you, you. in fact, you talk in the film about how you wouldn't have wanted to ask other people to talk about their experiences without having talked about your own. I, I wondered if you could talk a bit about that process in that decision.
2: Um, yeah, so I suppose um, it's, it's hard to know how it all began, really, because I suppose films tend to, you know, emerge over a period of time before you actually start making them. Um, hmm. But I think when I had reached the point when I was definite that I was going to make a film that, I mean, I suppose predominantly related to my father's death, though I have lost other people to suicide and you know many people who've attempted that, you know, that um, losing my father in that way, I was aware that it was something that was having an enormous impact on my work or the things that I was interested in making films about. And so in some way I felt like I needed to make a film about that first before I could get more clarity. Um, So for me, research is a massive part of my process and in an ideal situation, I have lots and lots of time to research. And so I watched a lot of films predominantly about suicide but also about other areas of mental health. Um, And I think there were two frustrations I felt in watching them. One was that it tended to be about those people you know, this happened to those people. Um, and the other was that there was seemed to be a tendency to try to end with a sense of hope. Mm. And so in the first instance, I felt it was really important to say that as the director of the film, I'm also someone who's been bereaved in that way and sort of collapsed the fourth wall of, you know, a film about those people. Um, and it's interesting actually, one of the people in the film said, Um, I think it's in the trailer I'm not sure it's in the final cut in the end but he said um, you know before it happened to his sister he didn't think it would happen to a family like his and I'd actually been at school with this person so you know it had happened to people very close to him before it happened to his family member and I suppose that's part of the point that the film is trying to Trying to express, I I think for most people, they never think it will happen to someone that they know or love. And I suppose part of the point of the film was just this sense that it's happening to everyone and anyone. Um, So in that sense, I felt it was really important to include my own story. Um, Yeah, I mean, I suppose I also think from an ethical perspective, it felt important that I was willing to do what I was asking other people to do.
0: Sure, Um, sure. Yeah, I I really like the end of the film where you kind of keep the camera rolling up after the interviews have actually finished. And so you see the kind of response of people to having got that off their chest and 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 shared that. And I thought that was an interesting decision.
2: Yeah. So again, I suppose I felt that, um, you know, people who are bereaved by suicide, walk around every day in the world and you encounter them and not until really I suppose I started speaking more openly myself with new people I would meet did I realize how many other people had been bereaved and it seemed as though as soon as I was willing to say it out loud suddenly you realize lots of people are going through these things but you wouldn't know and I suppose for me that's what the end of the film is about that you know having been through this process of talking about it yes that it is cathartic to have that conversation but also uh they're going back out into the world you know they exist beyond the realms of this film i suppose
0: Mm. thank you thank you bex i'm i'm going to come on to rory um uh, rory um i mean i I want to ask about your book um uh, shortly but first um first thing i wanted to ask you is um, you have, as part of a big part of your work, um, provided advice to people who are telling stories about suicide, whether they be playwrights or, or documentary makers or other people. And um, what sort of advice do you offer? And, and how does it differ depending on who you're talking
3: to?
4: No, well, thanks, thanks, Andrew. Um, I suppose yeah, it does differ for depending on um, obviously the medium and the audience and. I suppose I probably divide my the advice I have given or have been asked to give in two types. One is to do with um, safety um, and in, in, ter- in terms of um, obviously there are media reporting guidelines around suicide and how we can we can communicate really complex and difficult issues in a safe way. So that's one part of it. And then the other bit is then trying to help telling telling the story of suicide in a way which. So in part relates to the sort of safety the safety guidelines. So, for example, the stuff on the safety is we need to be really careful how we talk about methods of suicide. We need to be careful what language we use. So that's obviously that we're not, um, as people who offer advice, we're not obviously telling, mandating what people should do or say, but obviously offering what the guidance says. And so we know in terms of the methods, description of methods around suicide, there is evidence that talking about methods in an explicit way is being associated with other people then um, sadly dying by suicide using that same method in part influenced by the way it's been portrayed so it's so part of it is that um, element of things and then the other bit i think is we it's trying to convey the complexity of suicide so i've for the last 25 years using lots of different ways of trying to understand this phenomenon is trying to make to help people make sense of why people feel suicidal and then also there's something about become, people becoming suicidal and then people then acting on their thoughts or sadly dying by suicide so it's just so it's trying to because one of the difficulties often is we're all trying to it doesn't matter if me as an as an academic or as a, any other person in the arts trying to communicate any story we're trying to ultimately communicates an internal thought process in a way which is which which people can resonate with or make sense of and so I, so i so i try and help people understand all the work that we've done which combines interviewing people who have, a, who have had uh, attempted suicide family members who have been bereaved by suicide doing analysis of suicide notes as well as we do large scale surveys we do work with, we do clinical work as well but it's really bringing that together in, in a way which is saying, well, actually, this is what we think most people who are suicidal feel. Now, the complexity is important to convey because I think the risk is that if we can p- convey suicide as this um, caused by a single thing so often, you used to see a lot of in the media, especially to do with bullying or cyberbullying, people say, oh, cyberbullying cyber killed my son or daughter. That could be a headline. Of course, cyberbullying could be part of the, the landscape of risk, but it's to understand or help people understand that suicide in that context is rarely, if ever, caused by a single factor, and that factor can impact on an already vulnerable individual. And uh, and Mariam's discussion about early life trauma, so, I mean, that's such an important part of understanding the sort of developmental context of, of suicide risk. And then suppose then that the, the other thing is is in trying to help people convey it in a way which is compassionate and because of course we all were trying to well because the impact of suicide is is so vast on and and the thing is none of us can ever predict and I speak also somebody who's been twice bereaved by suicide and been thinking about suicide every day almost for the last 25 years is that I can still never quite predict the impact of of my work on somebody who I don't know or don't see, because none of us can understand what's inside, what, what's inside an individual and um, and what the experiences they have. And indeed, when we think about the impact of suicide bereavement, so there's no work would suggest that for every person who dies by suicide, there's potentially 135 people who will know that person. Now, those not every one of those people will be immensely affected, but many will be. Or the bit we can never understand is. Even though the you may, the person who died by suicide may not necessarily be close in a relationship as a like as a family member or a close friend, something about that death or that suicide attempt really might resonate with that person, or also bring to life to them their own vulnerabilities and their own concerns. So. So in the very, so a very sort of sort lo- roundabout way of trying to say this the, in the work that I do in advising. So I've been involved in recent years, I think, uh, uh, contributed to your and advised on I think six BBC documentaries on how we portray suicide, both in suicide attempts and death by suicide. But in those two elements of complaining, the complexity and the compassion, as well as safety, security, not about censorship. It's about trying to keep audience safe by, by, by tr- also being true to the message of the people trying to convey that
0: yeah thank you uh, and in the past
4: couple of years you've
0: channeled a lot of this learning into uh, into a book um called when it is darkest which is kind of based on your research but also came from your personal experience it kind of combines the personal and professional in a, in a really powerful way can you tell me a bit about the process yeah. of writing that
4: yeah so the, um actually i was very really struck by something beck said in and her um piece just now and so yeah again so because i so one of, things, one of the things I'm really passionate about is moving the story or understandings of suicide beyond academia to out there could help people directly affected, either people bereaved by suicide, <clears throat> those caring for people who are suicidal or also those who've been struggling themselves, and that could be any one of us, and it will be any one of us if we look at the statistics, but I really struggle with how I would bring together, I want a, a book somebody, a book people would read, that anybody would read, and that um, but again, combine both the per- professional, because I've been doing that for years, and knew how to do that, that I thought. But what I wanted to do then was bring, it, bring people's stories to it, because I've met, independent of the research studies, I, I get regular correspondence from people who have been some way or other affected by suicide. And, and what I wanted to do was bring together their stories, their narratives, as a way of helping people understand and to dispel myths around suicide and promote conversations in a way which hopefully would be soothing for some people help people understand because often people who are suicidal don't find, struggle to make sense of why they feel the way they do. So part of it was to help those people as well as helping family members who've been bereaved or anybody who's trying to understand this. But the bit that was really struck me when back was speaking was. Bex was saying when, when you were thinking about your plan, on Bex was like, "Well, I wanted that if I'm going to ask other people to tell their narratives, I should be willing to speak, share my own." And I suppose that's a bit I talk a lot about in the book. Is so, what I tried to do in the book is not just talk about um, other people's narratives because if I was going to do that, I would have. I, I made a decision, and I would, it will be only to be authentic. I had to share my own stories and and my own experience of being twice bereaved my own experience my own mental health my own decision five or six years ago to go to therapy which I'd never shared properly in in that way and but actually the way one of the decisions which which helped me make that transition from being private and trying to convey one particular image of myself was one of the documentaries I did take part on and was very heavily involved in in 2015 was Life After Suicide, which was a BAFTA-nominated BBC program, uh, and Angela Samata, who's, who's the presenter, lost her partner to suicide. And then part of the, all the consultations and planning for that, I was there as a sort of standard expert, and, but I was going to be able to be interviewed on camera to help people understand suicide. And one of the days, actually, in this room I, in Glasgow, <clears throat> the director said to me, would you ever share your own experiences of bereavement?
2: Sure. My
4: automatic response was, no way. <laughs> But then I reflected on it and and I decided to and it's the best decision I ever made because ever since then I've started to tell my story. And I think that story has my story has helped others. And then that maybe helped me then make the decision of how I would tell the story of the book and hopefully combining my own personal losses of two important people in my life to suicide, as well as my own mental health. And then bringing that and weaving that in. And hopefully, uh, hopefully that's been um, resonates with people.
0: Thank you, Rory. Um, uh, Mick, um, you've been working as a playwright and a a theatre director for many years now, Um, but this this project that you're just starting to work on now seems like a very personal project for you, and it was inspired by uh, the the difficulty of understanding suicide notes. I mean, please, if you talk a bit about how that that came about and where
3: it's at. Um, Thanks, Andrew. Afternoon, everybody. It came about directly, the play that I wanted to write came about directly from my brother's suicide and how that impacted um, my family. But when I say directly, the other relevant thing is that it's taken a long, long time um, before it felt like it um, was going to be possible to try and deal with the material. And the material isn't biographical, it's about... Um, the sort of experience we had which was um, shock in common with um, many or most people left behind I'm sure Um, but specifically because my brother left two notes which uh, were extremely mysterious and troubling and their connection to each other was potentially troubling and we Nothing in the notes we recognised as anything to do. We were all quite regularly in touch, and nothing in the notes bore any resemblance to the life we understood him to be living. And so that we were left in the in the in the middle of all that intense grief with this dilemma about if we took the notes at face value, then there seemed to need to be some investigation of what might have been going on in his life and what whether those pressures were external from actual people referred to in the notes. And um, this led to probably a year and a half or two years of um, a surviving brother and myself uh, investigating on behalf of, um, or all of us really, what might have been going on if those notes were to be taken at face value. So police were involved, there was a coroner's um, inquest there was uh, uh, lots of journeys back and forward to um, the Cardiff area where he died and um, it was very difficult to I felt to grieve and deal with the feeling that you might be about to uncover something that might make it more comprehensible or might make it worse if it could be and eventually the I began to feel that the notes, there was nothing in them at face value that could be proven, and that perhaps what they referred to was um, a life which was absolutely true to my brother in how he was describing it, but wouldn't be recognisable to anyone else around him. So there's a sort of a process for me about two years on from his death of um letting go of that feeling of needing to investigate and that we were about to discover something that would change your your view of the whole thing and the beginning of grieving on a different level once you let go of that feeling that it was all about to be impacted by some new information and i think maybe because of that uh, journey the idea of doing something of bringing that into my Um, artistic work in any way just seemed like a long way off I don't remember ever going it's something I couldn't do or wouldn't do but equally I didn't have any ambition to do it I didn't feel like it was something that I that would be um, particularly cathartic and I didn't really feel like I had anything um, wherever I came across other people who were bereaved by suicide I felt um, supported or I felt a, a collegiateness of, of some sort. Um, but I don't know that I really sought that out. Uh, so in the intervening years, I was uh, running a theatre company in Belfast called Tinderbox and their, their uh, remit was all um, new, new writing, new plays. And sometimes in the process of commissioning or developing a, a new play, it, it felt like the, it was important from an integrity point of view to um, say to the people on, in a process that I had had this bereavement because we were touching on that material in something that they were writing um, and not to say it. And it was always a, always a difficult choice because you didn't want to load something onto someone and make them feel they should step back or make them feel that you needed them to take your experience on board. And equally um, was interested in what um, Rory was saying, you know, when, um, and Bex, you know, that, that there, there comes to a point where it feels like the question's there. It's a very active question of whether you say or don't say. And I began choosing to say in those situations more often. But um, it was uh, much more recently then that uh, I, began drafting something in a, almost the opposite way to the way that I would normally write a play. Um, And honestly, it was like, I was letting this thing um, sneak up on me. I don't believe for a second plays write themselves, it's much harder than that, but uh, I was um, doing this when I was busy working on a funding application for something. I'd open another page on the computer and I'd write a little bit of this piece, which is called The Officer. And um, I didn't plan the story. I didn't really do it the way I would normally approach uh, a new play idea. And then um, eventually I felt like I wanted to be in um, conversations about where that might go. So the play is really the world of a person. And it's at a very early stage. It's just a, um, a short draft at this point. It's so about the world that is um, completely real to a person living it and um, involves them in threats to um, themselves, threats to their family and um, puts the main character in a, in a position where eventually what we will by the end understand is suicide feels to him at that point like a, a heroic act to save his family. It's a necessary thing to do to save other people. And in the limited amount since I began um, showing it, I've been really interested in people's responses to it. In no way did I feel that I have anything to say that's relevant to, uh, that has any expertise or anything important to say, if you like, about suicide. I'm just showing up with other people expressing something about their particular bit of suicide and grieving. Mm. And um, and then uh, finally, I decided to um, put together a project, which I'm about to apply to Creative Scotland for, um, to try and find out how I would put this play safely into the world. I was really interested in that question about the protocol of whether you you mention the things because in a... I would really love people... When I had just lost my brother, I would have loved to see a piece of work like the one I'm working on. And I I didn't find it anywhere. And I would like to make that work available to people if they wanted to see it. And the strange thing for me is I would um, not like to spring that on someone who'd recently, or not recently, but been bereaved by suicide. But I think there's something there, potentially, for people who have... And I don't know how to bring people towards that work, because in general, if it came to be a a theatre production, I wouldn't want to say this is about suicide to a general audience. And so the project that I'm applying for is sort of active research about duty of care and how to handle it.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, uh, thank you Mick I mean you, you you were talking a little bit there about about protocol which is something I kind of wanted to come back to the, 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 ha, ha, how we tell the, the stories um uh, about suicide and and it seems to be that it can sometimes depend on the way in which we're telling them whether whether it's through theater or film or or um, the, the way we're presenting them can it has kind of different sets of expectations and rules um, Mariam, I wanted to come back to um to you on this because um, as well as doing One Mississippi as a stage play, um, I think during, during lockdown, you um, kind of developed it into a series of short films for the BBC called Breaking Point. And you, um, when we were talking about this yesterday, you said it was quite a different kind of process with different kinds of expectations. And I wondered if you could talk a bit about that.
1: With uh, One Mississippi, there was a duty of care because, of course, because we were dealing with real people's stories and there was a process around that in terms of consent and um, consent for it to be part of a theatre production. But with the BBC and um, anyone here can access these um, short films about um, men, Mental Health and Breaking Point, they're all on the Biggely Productions website, but also on the BBC website. Um, they're short monologues. And what we did, was we, we, we took some of these uh, short monologues from my Mississippi and I also did additional interviews with, with men a, around Scotland. And in the discussions with the BBC, what we realised is because it was moving from the stage to Radio Scotland and BBC digital platforms, the the duty of care had to be expanded to include social media because the BBC were planning on putting it on YouTube, on Facebook, on their website, and all of a sudden you're in this whole other sort of realm of um, comments and possible trolling and people having opinions about uh, very personal experiences of... Um, mental health and suicide. And so for that process, I had to go back to all the men that I had spoken to in 2016, 2017. Um, I had to also get assurances that any of their family, even though it was completely anonymized as as it was for the play, that any of their family members who were watching the films, that recognised the story of their husband, father, son, would not would not be triggered by the film. And so I not only had to have the men themselves sign off on the piece, but I had to have assurances that immediate family members were okay with the piece going out on digital platforms. So that was a whole other level uh, that I didn't require for the for the play.
0: And, and and Bex, you sort of went through something a little bit similar with Our Love You to the End, didn't you? Because, because um, it has been shown at film festivals, but it's not something that's kind of freely available online.
2: Yeah, so there's, I suppose, as part of the filmmaking process, I um, like firstly had Samaritan's guidelines, and then actually someone from Samaritan's watched a picture lock cut for me to highlight the aspects that may be considered um sort of uh not good broader messages to put out in that sense um i think for me one of the massive decisions we made was not to include anyone talking about why they felt that their loved one had um taken their own life because quite and actually that's so it was probably about 20 hours of interviews that i did that resulted in the 29 and a half minute film um, and I'd say probably 50% of the interviews was people talking about why they felt it may have happened. Mm. But as soon as we got into the edit, it sort of became quite obvious very quickly that to edit that story down, it would have been remarkably easy to suggest that these people had taken their own eyes for a particular reason, because you're editing material, right? And people speak mm. at length and then you pick out certain aspects. And so we didn't actually include any of that in, in the film. Um, The film's been shown in four languages now, in film festivals across the world um, and at suicide prevention conferences and at a death positive event. Um, But I have thought about it releasing it online and I have permission from all of the contributors to do so. Um, But I guess it reached a point of wanting to be able to put it in a in a place online that felt safe. Yeah. So when it was part of the Scottish Mental Health Film Festival, you know, there was a Q and A, there was people talking about it, the surrounding information around. And I think as part of BBC, right, there's it's part of this world online. Um, and I'd had conversations with a suicide bereavement charity in the US and they felt that the film was potentially triggering and you know, had concerns about putting it on their website. So I was sort of looking for safe spaces to be able to put it um, more openly available. And I did sometimes have people contacting me personally looking for help, having seen the film at a festival. And in that sense as well, I mean, I could I could pass on suggested organizations. We did a lot of that research before making the film, both for the contributors and the crew but in terms of being contacted by people who I didn't know, I felt quite vulnerable in that sense because, you know, I'm not a qualified mental health professional. I, I can't provide that. Um, so that's sort of, I don't know, I feel like it's a slightly, um, uh, it's, 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 it's a shame that it's not more widely available regularly, but I mm. suppose finding that balance of making sure that it's, um, in a safe space was really important to me and to some of the contributors.
0: Yeah, um, Rory, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, the, the way we tell stories about suicide is important, but also the, the context and the place in which we're telling them is, is, is a factor too, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's, these things are always a, a balance. There's always um, there's always risk. And, um, and, what, and I suppose in the work that we would do, we'd always try and do whatever you can to minimize the risk because with risk, there are also with benefits, and uh, and certainly my experience in general, um, that as long as the um, production is dealt with, I mean, it tears the media guidelines, probably speaking, and uh, it, it does so much good. Um, but I think Met Bex's scenario, though, of basically going online with no sense of who's seeing it, I think that, I mean, I, I, mean, I agree that is. Risky, and I'm speaking to somebody obviously working in the in the field for 25 years. That's you still, and I'm so used to thinking about suicide and knowing that most people will be absolutely fine and benefit from it. So, so there is that fine line. I think. So, I, I think all you can do is, on balance, everything you can to mitigate any risks and promote the benefits of it. And and certainly when we're, when we're doing work, when I'm advising, say, for the BBC versus. In a sort of theatre production, There's, a, they're very, very different, very different things indeed. And because uh, you can, there's mu- much, you're much more direct to the audience in the theatre. And, and you've, you feel as if you certainly have more control over that. Whereas I think in a bigger production, BBC, um, I think, well, the other thing I think that uh, Marianne mentioned as well is that the BBC, there's a whole other level or major broadcasters in terms of their own um, safeguarding procedures. So, yeah, so I think. It's, so I think I probably would agree with Bex and if there's a safe place for it and some website which can provide maybe some some form of wraparound support, or um, that might be the way forward um, in that one. But yeah, I, just, I, I have a lot of concerns, about, for example, having these things on YouTube with completely, uh, a regulation is the wrong word, but um, in which there, there's no sense of monitoring and people do get affected.
0: Thank you, Rory. Um, I just want to address something that's come up in the, the chat. Actually, um, the, I think there was a reference somewhere to to committing suicide, and it's quite quite right to say that um, uh, committing suicide is, is is a phrase that we tend not to use anymore. Um, uh, Rory, I wonder if you could speak on that. I mean, the, 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 there is there are a lot of guidelines on particular phrases and particular words that we tend to use, right?
4: Yeah. So so obviously we, we tend not to use committing committing suicide because obviously it harks back to a time when suicide was illegal. Um, and so uh, certainly I, I don't use it, but you have to be careful and we've we always had this fine line of going of offering advice versus mandating something. And because um colleagues in Bristol did a, a review a couple of years ago before the pandemic in which they asked people about um, people with different experiences of suicide to tell us their views on whether they found some particular terms upsetting or not upsetting or whatever the range of ways of evaluating it. And actually, interestingly, committing suicide as a term split people in two. There was mm. a group of people who thought, um, found it offensive and lots of loved ones, and I've met many, many loved ones who who find find it really difficult here in committing suicide, but then there's other people who, who say, "A, you need to understand the context in which any word is used, and um, as well as thinking about the fact that when we're when we're, um, if I'm if I've lost a loved one to suicide, who are you to tell me how I should describe or talk about that person's death or that per- the way the person ended their life? So it really does split people. But I, so I, but I personally, my view is, I don't use it. And I actually made a decision when I was writing the book that the only part of my book committing suicide ever appears is when I'm having this discussion in the book about trying to nuance and understand it. So my advice would be steer away from because things like dying by suicide, ending your life are, are, are people don't find offensive. They find them um, descriptive. So you're not um, mandating, but um, I think it's just going for safety.
0: One of the things we were talking about yesterday is that um, as an organization, we always try to get the language right, but we, we work with a, a lot of artists who want to talk about these things in their own way, you know, and they, 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 so they think there's a balance to be struck there, isn't there, between, between not kind of making demands of, of people to, to express and describe their experiences in, in, in a particular way, but also trying to, to stick to the right language. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, Roy you probably already addressed that, but I wondered if you had anything more to say on that.
4: Well, I mean, just on that very point, I remember I was involved in a, a, a short, there was a short piece that BBC did on uh, youth suicide, and the interviewer went around the country, met various people who'd been bereaved, and one of the most powerful um, contributions was from a, a, a person, a man who, who lost a friend to suicide, and he describes it as committing suicide. And there was something about because it was it was that well, some language he used, and it was authentic. And so, in that sense, I when I watched it, even though obviously the advice we would give is try not to use it in that situation. I think that it was perfectly understandable for that to stay in because that because who am I to tell somebody else who's been bereaved how they should talk about suicide? And um, so, it, so it is a difficult balance. But as I say, um, my view is. I, I try to
0: avoid it. Uh, Mick, I think we had, a, we had a conversation briefly about that yesterday, didn't we? about um, different kinds of language that people use about it?
3: From my point of view, I can remember at the time, um, no language seemed to fit what mm. the experience was. And um, I can remember that uh, phrase being used and finding it, um, Yeah, finding it oddly sort of legal, not offensive particularly. What had had happened was devastating. The language was just part of the bizarreness of the impact of trying to get used to um, what had happened. Um, It's very different now when you are proposing a project and proposing inviting people towards that project. I think anything that I can learn about what is... An extra sensitivity for people is really useful because it's hard enough you know so anything that is um creates any extra pain or offense you wouldn't want to remove really if you're trying to create a room work and as i would be were on, on this project i hope to bring people together to um see if as i hope the um, the play would make a sort of meditative space and a beginning for people to reflect or share or chat, or whether actually um, the plays in any way triggering or um, just doesn't go far enough. I mean, I'm, I'm really in it to learn at the moment. But when it comes to language, yeah, if we can um, remove any extra obstacles to um, people participating in a conversation about it, then I would be up for that.
2: Just to add something, it's. I think it's, it's a really tricky one in the sense that I know one of my contributors really doesn't like "lost to suicide," and I have to admit I feel quite similarly. But I don't know what else to say, so I find myself mm. saying "I lost my dad to suicide" because how else do I, you know? Um, yeah, I think I think lots of people react differently to different words, and I can see with "committed," it's a, it's a more exaggerated um, or more problematic word. But I think all of the words around it can be quite um personal and yeah it's hard it's hard to find a language that is its comfortable one I think
0: Thanks. Thanks, Bex. And we've got a few minutes left. um, So if anyone has any questions they'd like to put in the chat, then then, then please do so. We've got one here. um, uh, uh, It says, I'm a therapist and I train therapists. And many, many times, shame surrounds people trying to talk about suicide those who've been bereaved by or who'd intended to uh, to end their life. I work at Breaking Stigma. And I too have my own stories to share. Have any of your storytellers, and this is directed to everybody on the panel shared experiencing shame. Bex and Mariam, you're both nodding your heads, who who would like to speak to that?
1: (laughs) Definitely, um, I think I mentioned shame earlier and um, one of the men that I interviewed was uh, Pakistani Scots and Muslim. Uh, He was also gay and he hadn't come out and um, there is massive stigma and it's a whole other play around um, sexuality and religion, but um, Islamically and and many of us have who have been brought up with uh, religious uh, religious teachings. There is um, there are uh, in the Hadith and from um, the Prophet Muhammad sort of uh, very clear instruction around suicide and that. very heavily on him in terms of he was a practicing Muslim so the fact that he had attempted suicide plus his sexuality was brought to bear on him with such a incredible amount of shame and the the shame both he felt was drove him to his attempt and equally uh, but then was there present after the attempt because of his religious beliefs. So um, that's just one example of one of my storytellers and he he was so complex, the shame that he had around these issues um, that um, it, t- it took him years to work through it and it was a few years after that I had spoken to him. Because I think that's the other thing as well that we have to be really mindful of when we're, when we're creating work with real people is the timing at which point you speak to them, especially if they are people who are vulnerable and have attempted suicide. So there was a lot of background work before I decided to go forward with the interviews because of these issues around shame um, mm. and, and, and everything else I just described.
0: Thank you. Um, Bex, you were also nodding your head at at that question. Did you have thoughts on this?
1: Um, Yeah, so I think,
2: uh, well, we decided not to interview anyone within the first year of bereavement, um, which was partly just potential contributors we'd found and whether I felt that they were in a place to be ready to talk. But I think for people bereaved as well, there's an enormous amount of shame. That's why I was nodding, I guess. I think yeah, it's sure, not, sure. I'm not sure that the word shame is used directly in the film, but I think the subtext of what people are saying, a lot of it is about guilt and shame of not having recognized the risk. I think that's okay. I think that's probably the biggest complication of grief relating to suicide as opposed to grief relating to other deaths in some respects.
0: Thank you, Bex. I mean, I, th- I think just to finish then, some of the people um, coming to an event like this may be people who, who are wanting to write or create work about suicide or tell stories about suicide in, 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 in some way. What advice would you all have um, for somebody in that position? Are there other things you would like to share with them from your own experiences? Please, and, uh, anybody who'd like to, to respond to that.
3: Um... I'll start probably because I've gone the least far down this um, journey, but I have been with people who have uh, tried to work through that experience when um, commissioning and directing new work in Tinderbox. I think um, when you begin to tell uh, a story and to bring it to other people by um, necessity I think there is an element of sharing which is hopefully supportive I must say having contacted Andrew about this um, project and then been invited it's been hugely helpful to just have a pre-media yesterday and be here today with um, Bex, Rory and Mariam and I can't wait to see and read your work so um, I think I would say if you're thinking of beginning and um, begin there are um, it's very supportive to have other people around to um, hear an idea and to have that idea as a focal point to discuss what you want to say and what you feel or have felt through
0: Nick, thank you. Um, Mariam, same question. One, one piece of advice or one thing you would want to share.
1: This came up in the discussion and Bex mentioned it and it's a very important point, I think, for all of us as artists when we're making work is what's, what's your intention behind making the work when you when you sit with your intention and that mm. drives the work, you're able to then know the place that you're coming from um, in terms of, of why you're doing it and whether it's the right time and how you're doing it, sort of all those who, when, what, why, how questions. Um, and I think that when you can answer that, um, you'll find yourself in a place where you will make um, authentic, um, work about something that's a very sensitive issue. And um, for example, with One Mississippi, which is part of SMAF in in May, um, it will be going around the country. So if anyone wants to see that, that I believe that using verbatim for me anyway, and using real people's words had to be the way forward because of obviously I was working with men. And so, the intention there was how do I authentically portray these stories and that the way was through their testimony.
0: Thank you, Maryam. And Beck. same question. If there's one thing you could tell to people who are embarking on the kind of process you've been through.
1: Um,
2: yeah, so for me, I think it was really important to do lots of research because that helped me to understand my intentions and how to express them so yeah one of the one of the big important decisions for me on the film was I didn't want to go into home into people's homes to interview them there partly because I wasn't sure if that was where the suicide may have taken place but also Mm. because I didn't want the feeling of leaving them there having asked them to talk about those things Mm. and then also because I wanted people to watch and listen to the people without reading their backgrounds without kind of judging the books on the shelf or the curtains or the weird cinema backdrop I have today because I'm teaching, <laughs> you know, I wanted just to be with the emotions. And so and that came those specifics came from watching other pieces of work and judging my own reaction to those pieces of work and therefore making those decisions. I think for me, one of the hardest parts of the journey with that film is once it was finished, the feeling of trying to get it out to an audience. And. Um, particularly because I'd asked six other people so I felt responsible for having asked them to share those stories and with indie films you know it's not a straightforward journey to getting it to an audience so I think being clear about that from the beginning and um, you know knowing what you hope the journey to be but what the reality may be um because it can be amazing to make work for per- personal catharsis but that may not be a film that then is on netflix you know yeah um, yeah, yeah but sort of knowing what it is and making those decisions as you go and being clear about those decisions with contributors because like if you're making a film and you say to contributors oh i'm definitely going to get it on bbc well you know i think i think that's an important part of the conversation is what is the point of this work yeah
0: yeah, yeah. Absolutely, Rory. I'm going to finish with you then. Um, I mean, I feel a bit like I'm asking you to sum up 25 years of work in, well, I, in a couple been, of minutes. I've been but thinking
4: but about answering the previous
0: question. Oh, what was the previous question?
4: The one that, that vex and
0: about, about about shame or about because I was, I was going to ask you. No, for the but the
4: question which your one nugget of advice. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. But <laughs> <laughs> what is your nugget of advice, please? Well, I suppose my answer is from the other other direction. I, I think from Mick, Mariam, and Bex, because obviously I've come to this from as an academic. I'm just thinking with my book experience of, and then trying to, so I came as this one type of expert trying to do this other thing. So for me, I think the bit which I struggled with, but I I, I think helped me was um, probably two things. One was to be, to be open to be vulnerable. Um, I think that was really important for me, because that's why I struggled with to be vulnerable enough to bring in, so for helping me make the decision on what what my intention was because I had some idea what my intention was but there's something about that being alongside being confident enough or humi- having sufficient humility to be vulnerable enough and be alongside other people and yourself in their pain and I know that's a difficult thing to do but that was suppose, what I've learned from this process and um, trying to bring that to the academic sort of angle.
0: Thank you, Rory. Uh, Thank you so much um, uh, to to uh, all of our panel today, um, to uh, to Mariam Omari, uh, to Beck Singleton, um, to Rory O'Connor and to Mick Duke. And thank you uh, for all of you for being with us and your very insightful questions. And um, uh, we hope you go well and, and have a good day.